0: So let me talk about some differences between Jewish and Christian readings. I, I think one th- thing that I would hope that Christians can learn is that even though within the Christian world, one way of reading the Old Testament, and here I'm using that particular term on purpose, is reading it primarily or only as a set of predictions mm. about the arrival of Jesus as Christ. Yeah. Well. Just a historical fact. Before Jesus was born, these texts were not read in that particular way.
1: <laughs> right. So
0: as a person who is a historian of religion and looks at changes over time, I would like people to realize, I'd like Christians to realize that it is possible to read the Old Testament without finding Jesus on every page and that there are people who intend to do that.
2: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I am your host, and this is episode number 140, and it's my conversation with Mark Brettler. So, last week we talked to AJ Levine, and she wrote a book with Mark Brettler called The Bible With and Without Jesus. Uh, AJ is a New Testament scholar, Mark is an Old Testament scholar. Uh, they got together and wrote this wonderful book. So the Bible with Jesus, obviously Christians, when uh, we read the Bible, we often do so through, I don't know, through a filter, through a lens of Jesus, which causes us to see Jesus everywhere, right? Like Jesus is in Genesis, he's in Exodus, he's in Leviticus, he's in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, he's all over the place. And obviously he's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way through Revelation, but when Jewish people read the Bible, right, especially the Old Testament, they don't do it with a filter of Jesus. Like they might look at the Book of Genesis, and we might see, you know, like where God says, "Let us make man in our image," and we're, oh, there's the Trinity: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Us, it's plural. It must be the three. And Jewish people are like, what? What? What are you talking about? Right? Like it's that's not. Why are you reading that into the text? And so there's two different ideas. And the beauty of Mark and AJ's book is that they're not out to make a case of who's right and who's wrong, but almost to honor the way that other people read the text who are different from yourself. And I love this because my whole training really evolved around the idea that we're right, and everybody else is wrong. And the goal was to convince everybody else that we were right, and get everybody else to read the Bible and think about the Bible in the same way that we do, or at least somewhat close to it. But that's not at all the um, objective of this book. And I have learned a lot from uh, my conversations with AJ and Mark, uh, a lot from this book. I highly recommend you go pick it up. Uh, this is a really good book conversation. And on that note, uh, kind of funny, for, for Lent this year, I decided that I was going to take a break, uh, give up arguing with people online, <laughs> because there's a lot of stuff out there that sometimes makes me uh, cringe. You know how you're just like scrolling by, and you'll see like a post about some political figure, and you know, this person's like praising their every move and you're like, I can't not say something. <laughs> right? Like, I just have to say something. Or you're scrolling by and somebody's taking a Bible verse and using it to shame an LGBTQ person and you're like, I, I just gotta say something, you know? And so I've decided I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just gonna keep on scrolling and instead of trying instead of trying to say something about why I disagree, I'm going to try to ponder why that person might think the way that they do, uh, what life circumstances might have brought that person to where they are, that they understand the Bible or this specific passage in this way. And even if I don't agree with them, even if I vehemently, that's a word, right? vehemently disagree with them, uh, can I still honor them, honor their position, honor them as a as a human being? and uh, just move, move along. And so that's been my, my challenge, kind of in the spirit of uh, this book and also in the spirit of the conversation we had with Sabine Selassie um, a few weeks ago, uh, Kelly Weber uh, a few weeks before that, Brian McLaren. There's been a lot of conversations this year so far kind of revolving around this idea that everybody has a story. And instead of trying to tell people why they're wrong, uh, maybe it would be best to begin the conversation by asking them. Interesting. Why do you think that way? Like, what led you to see this particular issue, this particular passage of the Bible, in this particular way? So that's kind of a peek behind the curtain of what I'm of what I'm pondering <laughs> these days uh, during the season of of Lent. Uh, a few things before we roll into the episode. Uh, number one. Patreon and BuyMeACoffee.com are two places where you can go to support the show financially. So Patreon is kind of a tier-based program where every month you can give $3 a month, $7, $12, $20, $30. Uh, Every tier gets its own reward. Uh, BuyMeACoffee.com, if you're not too into the tier-based program, totally understand. If you don't want to give a monthly amount, uh, Buy Me Coffee is where you can make a one-time payment uh, using your PayPal account, whether it's $5, $10, $50. If you come across a a podcast episode, a blog post, uh, whatever, uh, you can go there. If it's helpful for you, you can go there and you can say, hey, you know what? I'd like to take Glenn out for coffee, but I can't because I don't live near him. Uh, You know, the pandemic doesn't make that as possible as it was in the past. So I'm going to throw $5 at him so he can go buy himself a cup of coffee or $10 to buy a coffee and a sandwich. Uh, It's just a pretty cool way to go and support uh, the podcast if you're not too into the tier based uh, program type stuff. Uh, So that's number one. Number two, uh, the Heretic Shop. We have some new designs up there, some new t-shirts, hoodies, hats. Uh, sweatpants, all sorts of stuff, uh, head over there and check it out. I'll put the link to that in the show notes with Patreon and buy me a coffee. And also, if you haven't hit the blog lately, head over to whatifproject.net. We're doing a blog series right now for Lent <laughs> called God Never Said dot dot dot. And uh, the subtitle is An Offensive Blog Series for Lent. Uh, basically, it's there to, to tick people off, to make people think um, a little bit. So many times, I don't know about you, but for me growing up in the church and going to Bible college and seminary, there's just things that we just take for granted that, well, God says this, but does God really say that? Like, for instance, Jesus dying on the cross. Uh, I've often been told and for a long time in my life assumed it was because, well, God says somebody needs to die because of the sins that I've committed. So that's why he sent Jesus to the cross. But does it really say that? Does the Bible really say that? Did God really say that because of your sin and my sin, that somebody needs to die? Somebody's blood needs to be shed? And if that is true, if God did say that, uh, what kind of God are we really serving? Is this a very safe God? So all sorts of questions that come out of that one thing. And I kind of Take these things apart a little bit here and there in the in the blog series, but it's been fun so far. It's gotten some good feedback, gotten some not so good feedback, all the things to be expected. So head over there, uh, check it out. Whatifproject.net. Uh, they get released usually once a week, but I, I've been saying it's like the 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 posts are like a they're gonna come like a thief in the night. <laughs> they're gonna come when you least expect it, uh, whether it's on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Friday, and once in a while I might even drop two. A week just because it's my blog and I can do what I want. So let's <laughs> get over there and check it out. WhatIfProject.net. I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. And uh, special music today is for my friend Derek Webb. Uh, he used to be one of the one of the big one of the big guys in the Christian Christian music world, uh, playing for a, a major band. If you go searches his, his name on Google. Uh, that will all pop up for you, uh, Derek Webb. But nowadays he is making his own music. And really good music at that uh, with really profound messages. So uh, I'll put his links in the show notes. Go to Apple Music, go to Spotify, search Derek Webb. All of his stuff will pop up. And uh, all of that to say, uh, again, this is episode number 140. And let's roll the tape with Mark Brettler. Enjoy.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're sitting down with Mark Brettler to talk about the brand new book that he wrote with our friend, A.J. Levine, The Bible With and Without Jesus. And so, Mark, welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's an honor to talk with you.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you.
1: Thank you. So, Mark, I know very little about you. I obviously did some uh, Googling and some digging and some Quote research to learn a little bit about your work, but uh, before we jump in, maybe take a few moments to tell us about your yourself. Who are you? Uh, what do you do? Some of the highlights of your journey. Sure, I'm
0: originally from Brooklyn, New York. Though as I tell my college students, I grew up in Brooklyn before it was a cool place. I grew up in a tra- I grew up in a traditional Jewish home in Brooklyn, and I really haven't been back there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You are reaching me from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is one of the three places I live in. My main job is teaching at Duke University. Mm. And very often I'm in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, I love spending summers in Western Massachusetts in the Berkshires. And when I'm not in one of those two places, I'm here in Jerusalem. Uh, I'm a little different than AJ. AJ's specialty is New Testament. My specialty is Hebrew Bible, Old Mm. Testament. And I'm what I call an accidental biblical scholar. (laughs) I came to university very interested in being an economics major. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: As a first year student, I took a course in the Book of Psalms with Nahum Sarna. And I suddenly discovered that biblical studies could be really interesting and really meaningful. Mm. And I really never turned back. So I finished my PhD. I studied at Brandeis and at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem taught in a variety of places, have studied the Bible and taught the Bible, both from the perspective of the Bible as an ancient Eastern text. Actually, in three perspectives, the Bible as an ancient Eastern text, the Bible as a Jewish text, and the Bible within the study of religious texts using the methods of religious studies. Hmm. And right now, I'm to actually, in Jerusalem, teach Zoom. I finished teaching a couple of minutes ago. Hmm. And among the more exciting things I've done, actually, has been this project with AJ and the earlier project with AJ, the Jewish annotated New Testament. And one of the really fun things that I did that I never would have imagined doing, so sort of growing up as a Nice Jewish boy in a religious neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, was along with A.J. in March 2019. Got to visit Rome and had the opportunity of briefly speaking to the Pope and presenting him with a copy of the Jewish Annotated New Testaments. Wow,
1: that must have been a great feeling. It really was. Wow.
0: I'm appreciative of much of the work that he does. And the man truly exudes charisma.
1: Yeah, wow. I love the uh, Jewish Annotated New Testament. I have that on my shelf and it's a go-to one for me. Um, Did you feel like when you guys put that together that you just had more to say? Did that bleed into this book?
0: Uh, Very much so. Hmm. So the Jewish Annotated New Testament was a book that we edited together, although we're both very heavy-handed editors. (laughs) So there's a lot of each of us in that book, even in places where it's not real obvious but we wanted to write a book together that really uh, had an opportunity to represent our viewpoints. And also we discovered we work really well together. So we wanted to keep on going.
1: Yeah, I talked to AJ earlier this week and I asked her what the writing process was like because I said, when I first heard of the book, I expected to see like Mark wrote chapter one, AJ wrote chapter two, something like that. But there's none of that in there. It's like you both kind of combined your voice together to make this book.
0: <laughs> we did our best. Yes.
1: Well, it definitely comes across. So I appreciate it. And I will put the link to it in the show notes for our listeners so they can go and find it. Thank you. You're welcome. So I wanted to jump in by asking you a, a similar question that I did ask AJ as well uh, when I spoke to her. But early on in the book, you, you say that um, this is a quote, we hope that people with different interpretations with and without Jesus will talk to each other and understand each other better and this seems to be a theme that you've kind of woven through the book that understanding the the other person's point of view and how they they got to where they are is kind of way more important than being right or proving them them wrong so maybe talk to me more about this like why is gaining understanding of another person's context and point of view important and like how can that help uh, maybe develop a stronger or more fruitful dialogue
0: uh, sure let me begin by way of talking about the title of the book Mm. and an accident that happened from the publisher's side (laughs) during the process (laughs) of getting the proofs of the book. Uh, Oddly enough, the most important word in its title is the word and, Mm. the Bible with and without Jesus. And at some points the proofs came back and it's how I changed to the Bible with or without Jesus. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty big whoops. And both AJ and I had a fit because it showed a fundamental misunderstanding of what we're doing. Because the truth is for two millennia, there has been a whole lot of talk mm. about the Bible with or without Jesus. And what is the right way? what is the only way in which the Bible, and when I'm gonna use the word Bible here, I mean the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, sure. the Tanakh, uh, what is the only right way in which that should be read? And I certainly believe that talking to other people is good. I certainly believe that you learn a whole lot about your own religion and your own religious commitments and convictions by speaking to people who have different religious convictions. Hmm. I also feel that you need to be secure enough in your own religion that you can discuss it in an open way with other people. Talking to other people is really good.
2: Hmm. In the
0: case of talking to other people about the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, a note, even the different communities have to use or often use different words for, those very, for that very same book.
3: Hmm.
1: It's
0: important to see what we share and how we differ. And until recently, the big emphasis was on how we differ. Hmm. But the bottom line is we share a whole lot. Though we interpret it differently, we have more or less, not exactly, but more or less the same text. So let's understand and appreciate how and why we interpret that same text differently yeah. also as someone jewish you know, I appreciate that I'm very much a minority in the united states hmm. that the predominant culture in the united states and predominant religion is christianity hmm. and I think it is important to understand both what the majority of the culture is and I actually think it's also important for those who are in the majority to understand those who are in the minority, not to try to change people's beliefs, but to sympathetically understand who they are as people. And the greatest sign of respect that you could show to somebody is reading their scripture and trying to understand their, the scripture as they do even if you're not going to come around and agree to it. And we wrote this book over the last few years where shall we say uh, civil discourse in the (laughs) United States was at a low point. Mm -hmm. And I certainly believe in civil rather than uncivil discourse. And I really hope that this book will be able to model what that could look like you know not only in the religious sphere, but outside of the religious sphere as well. So let's I, just talk to each other,
1: yeah, I really appreciate that because as as I was reading this book, I was thinking back over my own spiritual journey through Bible college and through seminary and I grew up in the evangelical church world, and I've grown and evolved and shifted and all those things past that. I'm in this kind of place of, I guess what they call deconstruction reconstruction. But as I was reading this book, I I was thinking to myself, I wish, like, I know that in my, in my old school, like the evangelism classes are still going on and stuff. And I wish that this book would be like mandatory reading for those kinds of classes, because the way that we were taught and the approach that we took was to have conversations with people, but always with an agenda that I have to figure out a way to spin this conversation back to show this person why they're wrong and why I'm right. And especially when it comes to Jewish people, like the the thought was if they could just see, you know, what's so obvious that Jesus is there, you know, that we could then, we could show them why they're wrong. And I, I'm, it's almost like makes me sad to say those words, but that's the way that it was that I was brought up. But like this book I think is so beautiful and that the agenda is not to show that I'm right but to, sh- to understand the other person's context and why they see things the way that they do. And that that's where we can really have a connection. I love that.
0: Yeah, thank you. I, look, I would be so delighted if this book were widely used yeah. in evangelical contexts mm-hmm. and also in some fundamentalist Jewish contexts, which have very, si- very similar issues, but yeah. it really is crucial to sympathetically un- listen to the other and to understand the other, and quite honestly, to have firm enough convictions that your beliefs are correct for you, yeah. that you could, in a serious way, intellectually explore what other possibilities are.
1: That's right. So good. Uh, you say in the book that, and this is another quote, uh, Jewish biblical interpretation has no single point or goal. And then that this approach contrasts sharply with the Christian interpretation, which sees Jesus as the main theme of the Old Testament, even though he is never explicitly mentioned there. Uh, and then you talk about Jewish midrash in the book, and, which is sort of like elaborations, I guess, on various biblical passages. But my question is, what can Christians learn from this Jewish understanding of scripture? Because again, for me, growing up in the evangelical world, it was like our way our one way of understanding or the highway. <laughs> we, we have the, the yeah. corner market on things. So I wonder like how Christians might be able to become better Christians, perhaps, if, they, if they'd if learn from our Jewish friends to kind of loosen our grips on these interpretations and open our minds to other voices and other ideas.
0: Sure. It's a really important question. So let me talk about some differences between Jewish and Christian readings. I, I think one thing that I would hope that Christians can learn is that even though within the Christian world, one way of reading the Old Testament, and here I'm using that particular term on purpose, is reading it primarily or only as a set of predictions mm. about the arrival of Jesus as Christ. Yeah. Well, just a hysterical fact. Before Jesus was born, these texts were not read in that particular way. <laughs> right. So as a person who is a historian of religion and looks at changes over time, I would like people to realize, I'd like Christians to realize that it is possible to read the Old Testament without finding Jesus on every mm. page and that there are people who indeed do, do that. Yeah. So, Part of the way in which I got into editing the Jewish Annotated New Testament, before that, I co-edited with Adele Berlin, who is a professor emeritus at the University of Maryland, a book called The Jewish Study Bible on the Hebrew Bible. And there, one of the most gratifying letters I got was from somebody who was Christian who said, it never occurred to me that you could read the passage in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, as not referring to Jesus. (laughs) right? (laughs) I must say from my side, it never occurred to me that you have to read this passage (laughs) (laughs) as necessarily referring to Jesus. So one of the things that I would hope is that the Christian community could gain some understanding of how the text was read before the rise of Christianity Mm. and the fact that, Jews continue some of those same interpretations mm. because Jews do not read these texts as Messianic and certainly not as referring to Jesus as Messiah. Mm. So every chapter of the book has three sections. One is what the text meant in its most original context or to its earliest readers or hearers, what it meant to Judaism, and what it meant or meant and means in Judaism, what it meant and means in Christianity. And I hope that each group will understand something about the other group. Hmm. And more than that, in terms of Christians understanding Jewish interpretation of scripture. So it is the case that within Christianity, you can imagine all the textual interpretation funneling in to Jesus and being related to the life of Jesus, the the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and sets of related issues. Mm. Well, in the case of Judaism, there is no funnel like that, which unifies interpretation. Mm. In fact, you could imagine an inverted funnel, where from instead of from lots of different texts being consolidated, in reference to Jesus, you have a single text, which is going to be interpreted in lots of different ways. Mm. So sort of a truism, or at least an expression in America, you know, two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> but the bottom line is that is not only true concerning contemporary issues, but that is true concerning scriptural interpretation. And let me illustrate that in two, way, in two ways, you know, neither of which would feel innately comfortable within the Christian world. Mm. Uh, one is a classical rabbinic statement about the interpretation of the Bible, uh, although it is expressed about interpretation of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But here I think Torah is used broadly about the Bible as a whole. The expression in Hebrew is Shivin Panim la there are seventy faces to the Bible or to biblical interpretation hmm. you know, seventy now I certainly know that in traditional early Christianity there was a four there were fourfold methods of interpreting the scripture hmm. but you I don't know of any statement like this which applauds or valorizes the multiplicity of interpretation where it reaches to 70 different interpretations. And that dictum does not continue by saying, and this one particular interpretation is correct. Hmm. But rather to use a word which was coined by my Jerusalem neighbor, James Kugel, biblical texts have omni significance, Hmm. lots of different meanings. And that is something that is fundamentally built into them. So of course, before you use the word deconstruction, uh, I'll just use the word uh, destabilizing. There is something destabilizing about this particular notion, Mm. because you could be right and your neighbor could be right as well. But that is a fundamentally Jewish idea. And to come to my second point, one way in which you can see this is illustrated is when many traditional Jews now study biblical texts, they study it from something called the mikraot gedolot, often translated as the rabbinic Bible. Mm -hmm. And what a rabbinic Bible looks like is, in the center of the page, it will have the biblical text. It will typically have next to it an early Aramaic translation of the text, which is often not literal. And then surrounding the biblical text in that early translation, you'll have anywhere from two to a dozen or several dozen different interpretations of the text, mm. you know, beginning, from, beginning from the 11th century until perhaps a couple of centuries ago. We are sometimes the differences between these different interpreters is their method of interpretation, but often, they will be saying fundamentally different or even the opposite thing Mm. about what the same text means. Mm. And these all live, at least in visual harmony, Mm. on the page. And that becomes a real embodiment of the notion that there are 70 methods of interpretation, Mm. and that there's something so special about this text, that it cannot be interpreted in relation to any single entity Mm. in the way in which the Christian understanding is that most Old Testament texts refer to Jesus Mm. and cannot be interpreted in any single way.
3: Mm.
0: And I think this is a wonderful way of forcing people to become less dogmatic. Mm -hmm. And look, and it really makes sense because people change their mind over time. If you interpret the Bible in the same way when you're 60 as you do when you're six, then you have a problem. You're not going to interpret the Bible in the same way when you're enjoying august good health and happiness Mm -hmm. as when you are seeing an oppressive COVID pandemic all around you. So this multiplicity, I think, is very deeply sensitive to first of all, the potential of meaning within scripture, Mm -hmm. as well as something deeply human, that the same person can find different meanings in the text at different times. Mm -hmm. And certainly different people can find different meanings in the same text at the very same time. And this whole notion that we really have to decide who is right and what is right in terms of textual interpretation is just, it's just not a significant Jewish notion.
1: Yeah. And I think too, like just hearing you talk, like I think back, think about the Bible, whatever the Bible means to, to somebody, whether we're talking about the portions of the old Testament or the, you know, Genesis through revelation, whatever, but there's various stories in there that are referenced by different people. And they're talked about in different ways, right? I mean, even like, even if you think about the gospels, I mean, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are writing essentially about the same person in Jesus, but a lot of times they wrote about him in very different ways. So I often find it like now that I'm rethinking a lot of this stuff, I find it very ironic that even when I was identifying as the evangelical, that I I, I wanted to hold so tightly to one interpretation of a certain text when the text itself doesn't even operate in that way. Like the text itself is often operating in a way that has a multiplicity of meaning uh, within itself. So I think what you're saying is is spot on.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I I mean, I would use the word multi-vocalic.
1: Yeah. The Bible,
0: both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament are multi-vocalic. With the New Testament, it's much more obvious because you do have the four separate gospels, which are, distinct in what they say distinct in their theme distinct in their depiction of jesus in the the hebrew bible sometimes you have to do a little more searching Mm. to find those distinctions because they're not always marked in separate books but they're there and let me just take the example of the new testament with the clear four separate gospels that represents the fact that the story of Jesus cannot be told and should not be told from the perspective of the early church in one single way. Hmm. And that the early church can incorporate four different versions of the same story. What could be a more wonderful lesson as opposed to saying, I am right, and everybody else is wrong.
1: That's right, and I think to your previous point, you know if you're if your life is going really well versus when your life is in the midst of a pandemic you're going to read you're going to read a passage very differently depending on the circumstances of your life and i think that with the gospel writers i mean we often read it as if they were writing i know for me growing up was like well these guys like sat down and they just wrote this this biography of jesus that we'd have it all these years later but Now I'm realizing that these were essentially letters that these people were writing to a particular group of people, perhaps going through particular things in their life and their culture and their time of history. And the writer was trying to convey something to them to perhaps both encourage them, inspire them, remind them of who Jesus was and what he taught, things like that. And so the message was crafted in such a way that it would fit their context. And I think that that's, Brings it to life so much more.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And there's a reason they're called gospels mm. and not biographies.
1: Yes. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about uh, translation and maybe the uh, like ambiguity of ancient writings and how that can influence uh, how we understand the, the scriptures today. In the book, you and AJ point out that um, this is a, a quote, until the, the first millennium, Hebrew writing contained only consonants and it had no vowels. And so if that's the case, I know you have a, you have a really great section in this book that I, I could not possibly convey the, the power of it, so I'm gonna ask you, but, but how does that impact the, the work of a translator who is trying to translate it into, let's say, English?
0: The real question is exactly what texts are trying to translate. Uh, in other words, most translations of the Bible, and certainly uh, pretty much all Jewish translations, are going to translate the text after it crystallized with a particular set of vowels mm. toward the end of the first millennium of the common era. But we know, for example, from the Dead Sea Scrolls and from other evidence that the Bible was originally written without vowels, and the vowel system that we now that is now commonly used. Was a result of certain experimentation, influence of other languages, you know, in the 700s and 800s of the Common Era, uh, let us say. So, one question you have to deal with as a Bible translator is do you want to translate the text with the vowels as they are currently crystallized? Or do you want to consider the possibility that some of the ways in which those vowels have crystallized? might actually be a mistake. Mm. And by the way, I'll say that this issue is not only relevant uh, for vowels, but sometimes we actually need to consider the option that the Hebrew consonants themselves in the preserved text are mistaken. Mm. Sometimes the Dead Sea Scrolls have slightly different consonants. Or to give you an example from Genesis chapter 22, the binding of Isaac, such an important text, in both the Jewish and the Christian tradition. There, Abraham sees a ram. And the next word, the next word after he sees the ram is achar in the Hebrew text, Mm. which means after. That R letter, that resh of achar, looks very similar in Hebrew to the sound that makes a D sound, echad and the Hebrew text reads achar, and many other early translations of the Bible, including the main Greek translation, reads echad. So is it a ram after or one ram? Okay, simple difference, like a millimeter extra of writing of the consonants will change the translation of the word. But to go more directly to an example, so the type of example that you asked about, you uh, let me cite a particular text, not a well-known text, and then I'll give you a second example from sure. a better-known text within Christianity. But the first one is really striking. Isaiah nine eight, the Hebrew text. I'll read it and translate it. Davar shalach Adonai b'Yakov, the Lord sent a matter to Jacob or against Jacob. And the first word, let's say we're working in English, has the letters DVR, the Hebrew letters, Dalet, Vet, Resh. And it has the vowel pattern in the text that we have as A-A, put it together, DVR, you get the word Davar, which means a matter or a word or a thing. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible, was done for Isaiah before the turn of the millennium, before the birth of Jesus. And at that point, again, there were no vowels. And when the Septuagint translates that first word, it translates it in Greek as thanato, which means death or plague. Hmm. And indeed, if you take those same three Hebrew letters, Dalid Vet, Resh, DVR, and instead of putting an AA ah, ah vowel pattern in it, you put an e-e eh, eh vowel pattern in it, you get the word Dever, hmm. which is the standard Hebrew word for plague. So what do you want to do? How do you want to read this coincidence? Was God sending a word to Jacob? Or was God sending <laughs> a plague very or different. a pestilence <laughs>
1: yeah. against
0: Jacob? Hmm. Or to just give you another very quick example. Hmm. Again, from a well-known psalm within especially within Christianity, Psalm two, which is talks about an anointed one, the Hebrew term is Mashiach. And in Christianity, is under already in the New Testament is understood as specifically referring to Jesus. Mm-hmm. There, the Hebrew text of verse nine is Tiroim beshevet barzel, which means you will smash them with an iron staff. There, the Greek text translates it as. You will shepherd over them with an iron staff, which would be tear aim from a different Hebrew root. You will shepherd them with an iron staff. Now, what is it? <laughs> it is this talking about beating up on your enemies or is it talking about leading your enemies using a very frequent image of the Hebrew Bible of the king as a good shepherd? You can go
1: either way on that one. So, some of our listeners might be asking then, like, if this is the case, like, if translations can be so different, how do you know, like, what you're reading is like what you have in front of you on your shelf and your Bible is anything even remotely close to what might have originally been intended when it was written down? So,
0: two words of advice: hmm. one easy, one hard, but well worthwhile. <laughs> always use a bunch of different Bible translations. Yeah. And there you'll often see if there are differences, assuming they're competent Bible translations, <laughs> then they are reflecting different possibilities mm. of the Hebrew text itself. Uh, more difficult, but again, certainly worthwhile. You want to understand the first part of the Bible, Christian Bible, well, go study Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Want to understand the second part of the Christian (laughs) Bible well, go study Greek. It's a lot of effort, but the effort is well worth it because then you don't need to be mediated by all of these translations. And you can see all of these difficulties Mm -hmm. and problems and unclarities in a very first hand way. And you can start having some opinions about what the right decision should be about resolving these ambiguities.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's very uh, enlightening when you want to pull off like my concordance off my shelf or I'll go to my old like lexicon or something like that from, from seminary and kind of look up something and say, oh, the word that I have in my NIV or my whatever transition I have in front of me is actually very different than what it. Actually, might be.
0: I'm glad you're still using those tools. That makes me very
1: happy. Oh, good. I saw I saw you smile a little bit when I said that. So (laughs) yeah, thank you. Uh, So what I want to ask now is now this we could obviously talk about for another probably two hours, but um, um, I want to ask you about the story of creation. You have a whole sectional chapter about this in the book, uh, but as you do point out, when Christians look at the story of of God creating the universe. We, we do so oftentimes through the lens of Jesus. And uh, we immediately see the Trinity. That's the way that I was taught. You know, God, the father created the spirit hovered over the waters and God said, to let us make man in our image, which obviously means the father and Jesus. <laughs> so there's the Trinity. And uh, we then go on to read like the this story of the garden of Eden. We read the devil into the character of the snake and the sin of Adam and Eve is original sin that affected everybody with this horrible disease. But Jewish people read this very differently. So maybe talk to us a little bit about about that. I have no real direction for you to go. I just wanted to hear you kind of talk to me about uh, the story of creation from uh, maybe a a Jewish perspective.
0: Uh, Let me first start with the story of creation from a critical biblical studies perspective. Okay. And say that if we're doing that, we should not be talking about the story of creation in the singular, but we really should be talking about stories of creation. Mm. Because Genesis 1 through the first half of verse 4 of chapter 2 is telling one story. And starting in the second half of verse 4 of chapter 2, we have a different story. Mm. And by the way, if anybody doubts this, just try to think about the order in in which things are created. And you'll see that when land animals, man and woman were created is different in chapter one and chapter two. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about stories of creation, which is indeed why we have two separate chapters in the Bible with and without Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I love that in your question, you use the word obviously. (laughs) and one thing that we have to remember (laughs) is that what is obvious to one group
1: that's
2: right
0: is much less obvious (laughs) to another group because we never it's almost impossible to come to read anything naively Mm. without some background so you know if someone Take a totally secular example. Two different people who get the same shopping list and it says peanut butter. One person is obviously going to think it's skippy. Another person is obviously going to think it's going to be jiffy. And a third person is obviously going to think it's going to be, you know, organic, no sugar added.
1: Right.
0: Because of the background we're coming from. So all groups need to realize that even though we think we're looking at the text unmediated, Mm. we're all wearing glasses that have filters of sorts and backgrounds of sorts, which encourage us without ever even realizing, it's like the peanut butter example. (laughs) I mean, obviously this is what the text means. Mm. So this is not a matter as we explain in the book of one group is right and one group is wrong, but let's appreciate the different lenses that different groups decide to wear. Hmm. So now more specifically about your example, I will just say that concerning the Holy Spirit word in Genesis chapter one, verse two, the Hebrew word ruach in the phrase ruach Elohim. Well, that word, has two very different meanings elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. It can mean spirits, but it also can simply mean physical winds. And where a person is coming from and whether or not a belief in a Trinity is fundamental to her his religious belief may influence them on how they read that particular word. Mm. Or to take your other example from Genesis chapter one, of seeing the Trinity in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, where indeed the Hebrew, it says Vayomer Elohim na'ase Adam. Uh, God said, let us make person. And that Hebrew verb Naase is without question a plural. And the suffix is used in the following words, in our image, in our likeness, also, are plural, but again, it is an open question: to whom does that plurality refer to? Mm. And as many people have pointed out, uh, God, in various places in the Bible, the clearest case of this is in the first two chapters of the Book of Job, has a heavenly retinue who works with him. You know, a type of official executive branch cabinet. <laughs>
1: the <Got> board.
0: <And laughs> Yeah, a board, but you know, sometimes it functions about bad as well as a board does, but, that, <laughs> sure. but that's another story. But you know, look, look at the beginning of the book of Job. But mm. God does on occasion consult the board. Mm. So from the Jewish perspective, that is what the plural is about. And that makes sense given beliefs elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, uh, beliefs in early Jewish tradition concerning angels, Mm-hmm. Well, from the Christian perspective, coming with certain notions, which again, to go back to that word that you used, are so obviously true, <laughs> we'll understand it in terms of the Trinity. So again, mm-hmm. if one contribution we made in this book is to make people realize that what is so obvious to you is not necessarily so obvious to others. Yeah, I'm very happy about it, you know, and similarly in the second creation story with, with the Garden of Eve, I will just point out that in the Hebrew Bible, there are no little chapter titles that say things like fall of man. <laughs> you know, those words simply aren't there. Now, I know, and this is actually a significant difference between Hebrew and English Bible, excuse me, Jewish and Christian Bible translations. Jewish Bible translations just tend to stick with the text. Mm. They don't put these interpretive chapter titles in. But when you've grown up with this as a Christian and you see the title in one of your Bibles, well, of course, it's about the fall of man. Mm. But as AJ and I like to say, is this original sin? In which case I would say, well, the notion of original sin in the Garden of Eden is found nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible. Or how do you understand what the woman and man did? And in some way, can you even begin to envision it as original opportunity? So especially once you remove those titles, if you're willing to switch eyeglasses, you can understand the same story mm. in a very different way.
1: That's so good. And what about the the uh, serpent in the story? Because uh, again, you know, for the Christian, that's been you know we've been told that's that's the devil, and that's clearly the devil. But is it is it different in uh, Jewish thinking?
0: Uh, sure. You know, I'll just point out. This even begins with an issue of translation. Hmm. So the Hebrew word there is nachash, which is the standard word for a snake. So just think what it would do to some of your listeners if instead of talking about this animal as a serpent, we talked about it as a snake. Hmm. And it's a plain old snake. There's nothing, uh, it doesn't, nothing about the text implies that he was the devil. Hmm. And in Jewish tradition, he is not generally depicted that way. You know, it's a paraphrase Freud. Sometimes a snake is just a snake. Right.
1: (laughs) Not to read anything into it, right?
0: (laughs) Exactly. Or read too much into it.
1: Yes, exactly. For sure. So last question for you, um, since the majority of our listeners are in this place of uh, deconstruction or destabilization, um, as you said before, where they're maybe kind of stepping out of this um, evangelical thinking that we were raised in and wrestling with all sorts of questions regarding the Bible. Like what's your advice for them as they move forward and kind of make their way through this wilderness of doubts and questions regarding what the Bible is, how to read it, what to do with it, uh, that sort of stuff.
0: Texts are difficult. Scriptural texts are especially difficult. Mm. And many of us, especially in times like this, like to be settled, but life is unsettling. And often the meaning of texts cannot be pinned down. And I know that for many people, that's a really, really upsetting notion, but for me, that's a very comforting notion
3: Mm.
0: because I would suggest that if the meaning of the Bible was so clear, then the Bible would not have been able to function as the Bible. Because part of the reason the Bible can function in the way in which it does is because it keeps on changing meaning with new discoveries and means different things at different times. So get used to being unsettled. It is not the worst feeling in the world. Get used, it's it's no different than when you look at certain sculptures. Or I remember I went and spent some time teaching in Japan and I visited a wonderful rock garden in Kyoto that had a certain number of rocks, but you could never see them all from any one vantage point. And everywhere, you, from every place where you looked, you saw the same number of rocks or stones, but they were different ones. Or think of a sculpture that you just walk around and you see different parts of it. There really can be something wonderful about openness to newness, openness to seeing the same thing from a different vantage point. And that's really what I would encourage all of these listeners to open themselves up to. I know at first it can be scary, but it sounds like your listeners are part of what I would call a community, You know, not so much of doubters, but a community of seekers who are seeking new meanings in the plural for this book. It's a wonderful book and go and see those different meanings, try them on for size. And indeed, you might really enjoy this, looking at it from a multiple of perspectives where you're not always positive which one is right, or you let these different perspectives interact one with another rather than being so sure that this ancient wise book has only one single singular interpretation.
1: That's right. Wow, that is so good. And uh, Mark, this this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, stop by here. I know you said you're in Jerusalem, so the time is a little bit later there than it is here. So thank you for making time for me. I, I really appreciate it.
0: It's really been my pleasure, your questions are both very important and very good. So thank you very much.
1: Oh, thank you. And the conversation and the book are a true gift. So um, I will put the link again uh, to the book in the show notes. And real quick, where can people go to interact with you online if you have a website or any kind of social media?
0: Well, I'm on Facebook. People can try to contact me through Facebook. And if you go to the Duke University website, it's quite easy to find my email.
1: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Let's do a quick Google search, right? Exactly. Awesome. I get
0: lots of questions of all sorts.
1: I'm sure you do. We'll see if a few more come your way after this.
0: <laughs> Very good.
1: All right. Thank you, sir. You have a good one.
0: You too. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
3: Trouble breathing just for goodness sake